You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. As Kari mentioned, today we start a brand new series called The Art of the Question. And as the introduction kind of moves forward, you'll get a better idea on why the series. I want to begin today with two questions. Uh, Both questions are, I think, vital for any deep relationship. This past week, uh, in our group, some of the guys were gone in our small group setting, and so I decided to leverage these at the beginning of the group time, and I want to leverage them today uh, to set up today's sermon and the series. Two questions that would take any relationship in this room to a deeper level. The first is this, how are you, really? Like, how are you in and of itself? It's kind of, I'm good, fine, you know, not so good, but when you press them with the word really, there brings some depth to it. There brings a sense in which someone's going to have to take time to give a thoughtful answer, and then the person that asks the question is going to take time to listen carefully. So how are you really? Like on behalf of your marriage, your kids, your grandkids, on behalf of work, how are you like emotionally, physically, spiritually? How are you with with relationships? And, And so it's a great question just periodically, even husbands and wives, just to sit down and say, how are you? And then pause and say, really? Here's the second question. This one's building off of the first one, and that is, what is it that you want? Like, what do you want? Meaning, here you are right now in this current condition. What is it that you would like, like six weeks from now, six months from now, a year from now, five years from now? What is, what is God's plan based on where you are, what circumstances you've been dealt? What is it that you want on behalf of what's to come? And this question, too, will require a little bit of time and thought to give an answer. It also requires some thought and time to listen to the answer. So those two questions, how are you really? Second question, what do you want? Now back to the second question, what do you want? This is the first question Jesus asks in the Bible. Matter of fact, it's the first words that we hear out of his mouth in the Gospel of John. You can discover a whole lot about a person based on the answers that they give to questions. But you discover a lot more about the person based on the questions that they ask. Ready? Jesus asks 307 questions in the gospel accounts. 307. I believe he got his cues from his father. Like one of the first questions, the first question in the Bible is this from God the Father to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, where are you? Now, do you think God knew where they were? Absolutely But it was a question that was meant to sting, a question that revealed more about the Father and also revealed more to Adam and Eve about themselves. Well, Jesus piggybacks and asks questions of his own strategically through the gospel accounts. 307 questions, like I said. Here's something interesting. You take the 307 questions that Jesus asked, compare it to 183 questions that were asked of Jesus. Now, this is eye-opening. Of the 183 questions that people asked Jesus, How many do you think he immediately and specifically answered? Only three. So you can tell a lot about the questions that Jesus asked on behalf of clarity, who God is, and really a pressing in on who we are and the things that we struggle with. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to discuss this in a series called The Art of the Question. As we spend time looking at some of Jesus' most penetrating questions, to see more about God and more about ourselves. And on behalf of this week's question, the first question he asked, what do you want? In the context, we're kind of piggybacking where we picked up a couple weeks ago, we left off, um, where Jesus is in the process of John 1 selecting the disciples. 
He's like appointing the 12. And there are five guys right here that we're going to look at that Jesus poses this question to. There's a series of questions that kind of bounce off back and forth from them to him. But as Jesus asks the question, what he's really getting in on these men is this. What is it that you long for? What are your deepest desires? What's driving your decisions? It's not just a good question for the disciples. It's not just a good question for your spouse. It's a good question for everyone in this room. As you think through, what is it that you long for? Like, what is it that you actually want? What are your deepest desires and hopes? As Jesus would say, what do you want? Well, as we pick up the story in John chapter 1, before Jesus' earthly ministry begins, there's a guy named John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer's job is to tell the nation of Israel that the Messiah is coming. He's preparing the hearts to change, lives to change, and he's communicating this message. And people are coming out of the woodworks in Israel. They're leaving their towns and village to show up at the Jordan River Basin to hear John teach. And their response is they trusted God, they would go public in the waters of baptism. Now, what would happen is as John was communicating, periodically he would give illustrations. And one day, he noticed Jesus out the corner of his eye. John stops exactly what he's teaching and he calls time out and he says, behold, look. And everyone looked. And he said, this is the Lamb of God that I've talked about. Who's come, away, who's come to take away the sins of the world. And immediately, like everyone paused, they're not quite sure. But the second day, the same thing happens again the next day. Except this time, John is with two of John's own disciples. And John says, behold, that, that's the Lamb of God that I was telling you about. The one that's come to take away the sins of the world. The Messiah, the promised one. And John's two disciples that have followed John now stop following John and they move in the direction of Jesus. They start following Jesus from a distance, not to be too obvious. So they're falling at a distance. They're falling at the same pace. And here is Jesus' question to them. John 1.38, turning around, Jesus saw them following and he asked, what do you want? Now, if that were you, how would you have answered the question? On behalf of who you currently are and the things that you hope for, the things that you dream about, how would you respond to the question, what do you want? Like, I believe here's a list of possible answers that are represented in this room. Maybe some of you would say, I want next year to be different than this year. On behalf of school, on behalf of work, on behalf of family life, this year was awful. Some might say, I, I want one close friend instead of 30 superficial friends. Some would say, I want more influence, meaning I just want more followers, more responsibility. Some of the room would say, I, I want to escape boredom. I need a life of adventure. Like, like I need some things that are unpredictable to happen in my schedule. Some would say, I want success. And I don't really know what success looks like, but I sure know what failure looks like. I've experienced months of it. Some could say, I, I want to work really hard so that one day I don't have to work really hard. Others of you might say this right now, Jesus, I want my marriage to work. Some could say, I want my, I want my child. I want my parents to cooperate with the things that I'm doing right now. Others could say, I want my husband, my wife, my spouse to change. I want my family conflict to heal, especially, especially because November's coming and the end of the month with Thanksgiving, things are about to get complicated. Some are facing a difficult diagnosis and your statement would be, I, I want to be healed. Others would say, I want the depression to be gone, whether it's mine, someone that I love. Others could say, I want a house. 
a house that I'm not outbid on. All of us in this room would have these answers that we could give to Jesus when he asked the question, what is it that you want? And sure, all of those are pressing, but truth be told, they're all a little bit surface. Like if he really pressed in on all of us, I think what's at the core and the heart of our life is this. I want to be seen. I want to be known. And I want to be wanted. Understand that this is where these disciples are, but they don't yet have the courage to answer the question. Instead, back to these two guys that are following, when Jesus asked the question, what do you want? They respond to the question of their own. Like if they could have answered like us, they could have said, well, I want Rome gone. I'm tired of them oppressing us. I want the taxes lifted. I want Israel to win for a change. I want the Messiah to return. I want the bad guys to get what's coming to them. But instead of really revealing what's at their heart, they respond to Jesus' question with a question of their own. Verse 38, they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Which means these guys are inviting themselves to be with Jesus. And Jesus gives that beautiful response that he gives over and over throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus replied, come and you will see. Meaning to these guys that are following from a distance, I want you to watch, I want you to explore, I want you to listen, I want you to take notes. This is, this is not an invitation to be passive. It's an invitation to be strategically moving, to be strategically active. And on behalf of you and I, when Jesus calls us to come, it's not an opportunity or an invitation to be passive. It's an opportunity to be strategically active. And as these men follow... Here's something that they will discover, and I hope you listen carefully. They will discover this as they follow Jesus. What they want from Jesus isn't necessarily what he wants from them. And on behalf of what they begin to find, they're going to see that he wants something completely different than what they want. So think about what you want. Think about what they want. On behalf of what they want, in their context, they want bad people to be punished. But as they follow Jesus, they're going to find out that Jesus will be the one that's punished, not just for bad people, but even for good people. He will be crucified. They want Jesus to deal with the sin out there. But as they follow Jesus, as they hang out with Jesus and spend time with Jesus, Jesus isn't so concerned about the sin out there for the followers. He's concerned about the sin in there, like right here. You'll find out, pages that follow, these guys want honor they want glory but as they spend time with Jesus what they want isn't necessarily what he wants he'll teach them the journey toward humility and so uh, this serves as a heads up for all of us in this room if Jesus were to ask and if you're to think seriously about what he wants what you want from him understand that what we want from Jesus isn't always what he wants from us instead as we follow there's going to be a renovation. There's going to be a new shape to our lives. And as we consider what, does, what we want, understand there are a series of questions that are going to unfold in the verses that follow that we could ask on behalf of Jesus exposing us as followers, as those that decide to get close to listen and to watch. Here's the first question that we could ask. What's in a name? As these guys in this story begin to follow Jesus, One of them, Andrew, we're given his name, decides to go get his brother Simon. He goes to tell Simon, he says, Simon, we found the one. The Messiah is here and Simon comes quick. As soon as Simon comes to Jesus, understand Jesus does something immediately. Watch what happens. Verse 42, Jesus looked at him and he said, you are Simon, son of John. 
you'll be called Cephas, Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So immediately, as soon as Jesus meets him, he says, all right, Simon, you're now Peter. To which oftentimes we refer to him as Simon Peter to keep us from getting confused. Does this seem strange a little bit? Like what's in this name change? That'd be like Jesus coming to me and saying, you are Tim, son of Holly. From now on, you will be known as Bob, right? It's like, why? Jesus, I've kind of grown accustomed to Tim. It's, it's part of my life. What's in a name? Understand it in the first century. Names had meaning. Parents would ascribe names. They would prayerfully ascribe names to their kids in hopes and praying that the kid would grow and match the name. Like faith. Hope, joy. That the children, those girls would turn up to be full of faith, full of hope, full of joy. My name, Timothy, means honoring God. I remember as a kid, like it was above my bed on a little plaque, and I'm sure my parents named me for that reason. You know, we kind of cut up in my men's small group about this. We all looked up our name, the meanings of our names probably earlier in the year. And one guy's name is Ryan. Do we have any Ryans in the room? Your name means little king, so enjoy that one, all right? But back to this story. Um, Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter. So since names have meanings, what's the name mean? Peter means Petros. We get the term petrified rock. So he's calling Simon the rock. Does anybody in this room have an image in mind right now? I do. It's this one. The problem, the problem is that name makes a lot of sense for him. It does not yet make sense for Simon. You see, Simon is somewhat small, insignificant in this part of the story. Simon will try to follow Jesus and periodically he'll drop the ball in a major way. Even in front of a group of little girls, he'll say, I never knew him three different times. But when you ask the question, what's in a name? You see, Jesus sees Peter's present condition, and he recognizes Peter's future form. Meaning, Jesus doesn't just call Peter rock because of what he is. He calls him the rock because of what he will become. So what's in a name? As you follow Jesus and it's exposed that what you want isn't necessarily what he wants, understand this, that you'll discover Jesus sees who you are. And he sees who you will become. As a follower of Jesus, he's encouraged us to walk in that direction. Here's my frustrating thing. When I read the stories in Scripture, I get kind of frustrated periodically. I'm like, Peter, you had it made. You got to see him with your own eyes. You got to stand with him. You got to hear him say out loud your new name. You had it going for you. But understand that when you read the gospel accounts, even though they were with him, after his crucifixion because they saw him die, when they saw him risen, they still didn't believe until they touched the holes in his hands and in his side. And then Jesus made a statement to them, the ones that have it made because they're around him. He made a statement to them that ought to encourage you and I where we are today. Jesus told them, John chapter 20, verse 28, because you have seen me, you've believed. And then here's where he includes you and me. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you. And that's me. Like as we follow him, understand that he sees who you are and he sees who he wants you to be. Philippians 1.6, be confident 
The very thing that he who began a good work in you will carry it onto completion. Now, how do we experience this renovation, this name change? Understand, this is where it happens, not in a room this size. And I will say it again and again and again. It's hard to connect with people two or three seats down. It happens best in a community, men, where you get to be the real you with a group of other men. And women, you get to reveal the unvarnished you in front of other ladies. Where people find out who you really are. Like you're a little demanding, a little controlling, a little insecure, kind of consumed with some comparison. They find out who you are in your in those moments where you're willing to be real and they identify the person that God called you to be and they help you to get there. That's exactly what's happening to Peter. And by the way, think how significant this is. If it's significant for you to be in a setting like this, think how incredible it is for your wife. Think how incredible it is for your kids. It's why midweek services matter so much for all the ages of kids. There are adults, there are like-minded students that are pouring into them, recognizing who they are and who God called them to be on this journey of following Christ. So when Jesus says, what do you want? They're slowly discovering that what they want is quite different from what he wants. What's in a name? Well, he sees who you are. And he sees who he wants you to be. Question number two, who's following who? A great question on behalf of what's about to unfold and the answer for discipleship. These men are going to get reshaped. They're going to get reformed. They're going to get renovated. And you see it in one simple verse. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Now there's an important observation to make in the text. Ready? Philip is following Jesus. Jesus will not be following Philip. This is big for me to understand because in my world, periodically, your world too, we have these moments and some circumstance, some problem has our undivided attention. It's like we want to call time out and say, okay, Jesus, I need you to come into my life at this section. I need you to come be with me, follow me. In other words, Jesus, I need help with this because this is bothering me. To which Jesus would say, Tim, let's talk about what you're doing that's troublesome to me. How about you deciding to follow me? And understand when it comes to who's following who and Philip is following Jesus and he's called us to follow him, you and I have to understand this. We do not follow Jesus to get where we want to go. We follow Jesus to get where he wants to go. On behalf of following Jesus, the cost of discipleship, following Jesus is not an invitation to an opinion or perspective. It's an invitation to follow a person. And you and I must realize very carefully, especially those that have grown up at church and never left. Ready? It is possible to arrive at a biblical opinion or a theological perspective and still miss Jesus. That's why Jesus gives us an invitation to a person, not an opinion. A person, not a perspective. It's why he says, follow me. And this is what he would say over and over to the crowds. Like Matthew 11, he would say, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And there you will find rest for your souls. Come to me, a person, not an opinion. A person, not a perspective. And I love the prerequisite for coming to Jesus. You just have to be really, really tired. Jesus, another time to the crowds, would say this in John 6, verse 37. Whoever... 
comes to me, I will never drive away. And some in this room, like who's following who? If you decide to follow Jesus, this ought to hit you at a deep spot. Because people that you've come to, they've hurt you. They've driven you away. They've pushed you to the side, whether it's family, whether it's at work, whether it's a coach, whether it's a teacher, whether it's close friends that have stabbed you in the back. Understand this invitation to Jesus is to a person. Oh, back to the story immediately. We saw this a couple weeks ago. I got to pull it back up because this is where it gets fun. Remember Philip invites Nathaniel. He says, come and see. Remember Nathaniel's response because he had an obstacle. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Remember that statement? It was like, um, remember I gave the analogy, can anything good come from Tuscaloosa? Well, yes, it did. We saw it, right? <laughs> this leads to question three that Nathaniel asked himself. Ready? How does he know me? So the first question that builds off, what do you want? What's in a name? Second question was, who's following who? And now Nathaniel asks out loud, how does he know me? Remember, as Nathaniel approaches Jesus, Philip goes and gets him. Jesus talks out loud about Nathaniel. So Nathaniel hears Jesus talk out loud about Nathaniel. Verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is zero deceit. This guy's not pretending. He's not hiding. He's not fake. What you see is what you get. And Nathaniel hears this and responds, How do you know me? There's the question. How do you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you. While you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. There's a lot in that verse. Philip responds to it. I'm sorry, Nathaniel responds, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, let's ask the question. How did Nathaniel make the jump? Because earlier he's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And all of a sudden, who do you, you know me. And then he makes a statement after Jesus points out the fig tree, you are the son of God. So what happened to Nathaniel under the fig tree? We don't really have that much of an idea, but we know Jesus saw him there. Something so deep happened for Nathaniel under the fig tree that when Jesus pointed it out, it caused Nathaniel to make the jump. I'd say what happened under the fig tree, if I had to guess, was something just between Nathaniel and God. Perhaps Nathaniel was thinking like you and I on behalf of the question that Jesus asked. Is he sitting under the fig tree overwhelmed with life? What do I want? Like, what are my deepest hopes, my deepest desires? Then he considers, I want to be seen. I want to be known. I want to be wanted. And what takes place when Jesus says, I saw you? Jesus says, I saw that. And I see you, Nathaniel. I know you. And in spite of all that, Nathaniel, I want you to know that I still want you. Understand, there are people in this room today that need that message. Some of you have had something tragic happen. happen. Something was said. Something left a mark. And you've been spending all your time, effort, and energy for the last several months, last several years, trying to prove that statement wrong. 
And Jesus wants you to know, I saw that. I see you. I know you. And I want you. No doubt there are people in this room that have done something extremely wrong. You eat up with the guilt affiliated with it. Maybe it was this year. Maybe it was last year. Maybe it's been years ago. Maybe it's been repeated. But since you've decided to start following Jesus, you're still eat up with guilt. Periodically, that thing comes to your mind. Jesus wants you to know, hey, I saw that. I see you. I know you. And I still want you. Periodically, left to ourselves, I'm telling you, all of us spiral on past decisions. All of us dwell on our greatest regrets and failures. We come to church and we look the part. But in our heart of hearts, we think this. If anyone really saw me, if anyone really knew me, I really don't think anyone would want me. And this is the message of the Bible. Jesus says, look, I saw it. And I see you. And I know you. And I want you. For the remainder of the book of John, it continues to build. And Jesus gives this invitation over and over and over to people that are intrigued. He says, I want you to come and see. Just come and see. In other words, hey guys, I just want you to come and watch. I want you to come and explore. I want you to come and listen. I want you to come discover. Put yourself in close proximity to me and see what it's like to follow. And these men and women through the gospel accounts will be encountering Jesus in different scenarios. John 2, Jesus is invited to a wedding. By the way, can you imagine? This is what Jesus was like to friends and family in the area. When they're having a wedding, you're inviting great friends, people that are fun. Who did they invite? They invited Jesus. Jesus goes to the wedding. The disciples are following him. They see Jesus in this setting, interacting with new couples. John chapter 3, they watch Jesus from a distance. Like, I love how John says, I took all the notes and I watched Jesus as he interacted with this religious guy named Nicodemus. Jesus asked question after question to get to the heart of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus' life was changed. He would decide to follow. Or John chapter 4, the disciples would watch Jesus as he interacted with the Samaritan woman at a well that no one would talk to. Jews aren't supposed to do this. And time and time again, they would watch, they would explore, they would listen, they would discover. Even to the point of what happened to one of Jesus' best friends, Lazarus. And Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. They would watch in John 11 as Jesus looked at them eyeball to eyeball in one of their most devastating moments. And he would ask a penetrating question, do you believe And over and over, the disciples, the close friends would follow Jesus from encounter to encounter to encounter, listening to Jesus ask question after question after question. And with each question, he would reveal, I saw it. I see you. I know you. And I want you. And time and time again, they all discover that what they want most from Jesus isn't the same as what he wants from them. I want you to know I'm praying the same thing for you. As you decide to explore, to follow, even from a distance, as you listen, as you read, 
as you discover. As Jesus asked the penetrating question, what do you want? I pray that you'd slowly see what you want most isn't necessarily what he wants most. And on behalf of what's in a name, here's what it means. As you follow Jesus, he sees your current condition. But he also knows your future form. Your past does not define you. It's gone. And on behalf of who's following who, here's what he's saying. You and I have to remember we follow Jesus to get where he wants to go. Not where we want to go. And as you follow him, as you slowly trust him more and more, you're going to have dark moments. You're going to have nights where things raise their ugly head and remind you of your past, statements that people made, wondering if people really knew me, if people really saw me, no one would really want me. And the message of the Bible is this. Jesus says, I saw that. And I see you. I want you. I love you. Today with heads bowed and eyes closed. There is a song. That gets to the core. Of what you really want. And this week we've spent time. Thinking through the message, thinking through the text, thinking through our story, thinking through your story. And this song has been selected to remind us why we follow, why we explore, why we listen, why we read. It gets to the core of what we really, really want. To be seen, to be known, to be wanted. And the reason it all starts is because of how much he loves us. My prayer today is that as the song is sung, maybe you're moved to sit. Maybe you're moved to stand. Maybe this is a chance for you to give just out of a gracious heart. But as this song is sung, whatever it is that's defined you in the past, let this song remind you how much he cares. Father, today I just pray for every person in this room that as we consider your first question, what do you want? That we would take our desires, our wants, our hopes, our dreams, and we would hold them with an open hand, understanding that what you want for us may not always match what we want for us. But as we follow, I pray that we would be reminded that you see us, you see all the issues, you know us, you want us, and you love us. And I pray this today in Jesus' name.